2: Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. As Carl said, I'm Scott Wapner back at One Market here in San Francisco. Front and center this hour, the state of the tech trade. After the Fed's even higher for much longer stance on interest rates, the Nasdaq hit hard following yesterday's meeting. That's selling continuing today. We will discuss all of it with the investment committee, including star fund manager Glenn Kacher of Light Street. He is with us exclusively right here today, and we're excited about that. Also joining me, Josh Brown, Jenny Harrington, and Jim Labenthal. Let's first check the markets as we always do. It's 12 noon, of course, in the east, and we are red across the board. Not yields, though. Uh, they are up today. So stocks are selling off. Rates are jumping to fresh cycle highs. We're really zeroing in, though, on what's happening in the Nasdaq. It was down about 1.5% right after the Fed decision. It's down yet again today. It begs the question, can the tech trade still work in a much higher for even longer market? Josh Brown, take that first. What do you think?
3: i think the tech trade is going to struggle so long as we see uh rates moving higher it's nothing new this has been the reality that we've been living with uh when you get these spikes especially at the longer end of the curve obviously everyone's discounting mechanism and you see volatility spike up so that's where we are right now longer duration yields are moving, Judge, 10-year up 13 basis points, 20-year and 30-year, as you mentioned, uh, both up, hitting cycle highs, highest since uh, 2007 on the 10-year, 2011 on the 30-year. The dollar plays into this as well. The dollar is now at its highest level since the SVB crisis, uh, up about 2% on the year. If you remember, the dollar hit its low in the middle of July. Two weeks later, the stock market peaked, at least for now. Uh, for the year, ever since then, uh, you've had a dollar rally, and that doesn't work for stocks either. So now you have the Dow down four percent from that moment. You have the S and P five hundred down five percent. Q's are in a six percent dip, uh, and the Russell two thousand is in a literal correction. It's off ten percent from that level, and it's it's not uh, a coincidence. This has been a an inverse correlation that we've been documenting all year and it's just what it is so i think now we're going to all furiously debate whether or not there's another quarter basis point rate hike in november Personally, I don't think it matters all that much but to the market it clearly does and you're just seeing repricing of risk. I think it's perfectly natural the vix is now uh, 16 or so uh, that's the highest level that we've seen since August and you know that that might not be done at 16. So I think we, we all have to just uh, be okay with we had a great first half of the year and this is a little bit of give back. September is sloppy and and this year is mm-hmm. is no different. So Glenn Cacher, I mentioned uh, it's nice to see you. Uh, Welcome back to our program.
2: You are uh, all over the tech trade um, for certain. If you look at your holdings, NVIDIA, GitLab, Meta, Tesla, Alphabet, Taiwan Semi, Salesforce, Microsoft, AMD, Amazon. Do we have a problem now with tech by virtue of what happened yesterday?
4: I don't think so. I mean, as an investor, you're looking to uh, invest in trends that you think are going to outpace whatever headwinds might be in front of you. This is a normal correction. We see corrections every every year. We've had, you know, the Fed information come out just just here yesterday and and in previous weeks. And
2: you know, we don't ever expect to invest and get a straight line up. I mean, it's virtually been a straight line up for for let's say the mega caps, the magnificent seven this year. I mean, the the gains have been pretty astounding. But in a much higher for far longer environment, doesn't the tech trade struggle?
4: Well. I think if I if I'm looking at it and trying to handicap it we're investing behind an AI build and a change in the dominant computing architecture that's going to go on for a decade or possibly much longer than that and so when you think about some of these applications whether it's Microsoft's Copilot and what they can do for the efficiency of a programmer and Globally, the salaries of programmers are is that's a 1.4 trillion dollar value capture or value opportunity to make them more efficient. This is we're talking about tremendous long-term opportunities here, and I would bet that the opportunities we're investing behind when we're investing in technology and the and the AI opportunity that's going to outlast any short-term.
2: Correction and any worries about the Fed in the near term. So we'll get we'll get obviously to more of that. But Jenny, how would you entertain this this question? I mean, it's, it, it becomes a trickier market. Dan Ives suggests that tech stocks can rise in a higher for longer mandate. Um, he says yes is his answer, and he gives you you know all the reasons why. Is I, I suppose you would would suspect to hear. From him, but you know there are some who suggest that by virtue of what the Fed did yesterday, which was somewhat surprising, at least leaning for you know taking some cuts away and being in that much higher for far longer stance. That you you a you have rates higher, and then you have the the risk of a recession rising as well. So tricky for a value investor like you. Uh, in many respects, you're not you know overweight to to any of these mega cap tech names by any stretch. But what do you do now?
5: Right, so I think... I think we really need to stop, particularly right now, talking about tech as a broad thing overall. And it's really interesting because the conversation we had here yesterday with respect to our discipline growth strategy was how many opportunities there actually are in kind of like the fallen tech angels. So we're looking at things, and we haven't added them yet. We may or may not. But we're looking at things like DocuSign and ZoomInfo, which actually have really significant free cash flow yields. They're down significantly off their high. So we're starting to sort through tech, so I think we need to just not say, heck, and let that be it but rather get really really granular in terms of where we're looking and what's happening and I know we'll talk about it later but like what happened today with Cisco and Splunk is really interesting and that's saying like okay you've got Cisco trading at 13 times being treated as if it's just an old school cyclical hardware company but actually they've really morphed into a subscription based software company in terms of what p- component that makes up of their revenues so like you need to start thinking more creatively not just being broad based i think this is where we've kind of coasted for the past 10 years on just tech going up and the market going up and you being able to play index indices. but I think it re- excuse me, <clears throat> I think it really is important now to be an active manager and have a more concentrated portfolio and make really specific stock bets.
2: Maybe so, but you know Jim, the, the slide broadly in tech um, is pretty dramatic. right You look at the NASDAQ is down four and a half percent in a week. Um, I said it was down 200 points, 1.5% right after Powell got off the stage. Uh, It's following through today. The Nasdaq's down uh, 180. So if you're invested in growth, if you're invested in mega cap, I don't care really where you're invested along the growth spectrum, if it's part of that universe, it seems to be a struggle by virtue of this notion that rates are just going to be higher than we thought for longer than we thought.
1: Um, Scott, that is definitely the catalyst for why the market's moving overall, and I do think what's going on today is about the markets overall. What we're seeing in tech is just what's been going on all year, which is to say that it's amplified every market movement. If the market goes higher, tech goes higher than the market overall. Same thing on the downside. But I think all that's happening right now is that it's September seasonality. The catalyst for the seasonality is the Fed. The market's going to take a few days here and readjust to higher higher than it thought for longer than it thought. And in that process, as people take a little money out in this this incrementally more fearful environment, where do they look to take money from? They take money from the things that have gone up, in some cases, over 150%. I'm not surprised to see NVIDIA uh, down as much as it is, uh, given that that's where People are going to take money from them. They're going to take their profits. But I do not, for one second, think that we are at the start of a long slide into much lower lows from where we are here. This economy is too strong. Number one, look at jobless claims today. And fundamentally, and I think this is what Glenn was saying. You know, fundamentally, these technology stocks have good reason for earnings to grow from here. Whether it's AI, whether it's enterprise spending, you know, like like uh, Jenny's talking about with Cisco, whether it's cloud computing, there are many reasons for the stocks to fundamentally do well once we get past September that's all
2: fine and good Glenn but you still have to entertain the idea of whether some of these valuations within the mega cap stocks many of which as I said you own are just overvalued I mean, whether they're too rich how do you how do you look at valuations in, in that space particularly the biggest seven stocks uh, Scott, I completely disagree. Uh, you know, the reality
4: is that the multiple they you're paying for NVIDIA today is lower than it was at the beginning of this run. That's fair. And uh, the earnings power is being has been demonstrated already. They're completely sold out of, of graphics processing units. And the, the backbone of AI, the demand for AI going forward over in a multi-year period is gonna be tremendous. They make the chips, and AMD does as well, That are going to be the bridges the the roads and tunnels of artificial intelligence if you want to invest in that cycle and you want to invest in
2: a cycle that's going to last 10 years those are the stocks you want to invest. i hear you i mean look ken griffin citadel founder and ceo obviously was on our network within the last week and here's what he said about nvidia which i he has he said i have huge admiration for what they've done I mean, what an unbelievable story! The stock is pretty frothy right now, but boy, have they executed! That's an A-plus management team. So I mean, even somebody like Griffin, who who likes and admires what they've done, takes a look at you know that stock in particular. But many of these, maybe not Nvidia, you know, specifically, but many are above their, their 10-year historical average for for forward PE. Citadel's investment strategy is is by definition
4: pretty short-term when you look at how they make their money. So uh we're playing a different game than they're playing Uh, we're not worried about what's happening in the the next week or two
2: we are looking at what's going to happen over the next one three five ten years but when i say that you know okay you look at the 10-year historical averages i said if, if if there are many of these stocks if not most are above it you don't take any pause and say, well, you know, Microsoft is trading, you know, uh, I don't know, it was like 33 times. It's probably a little less than that now. Apple was, you know, above 30, and it, obviously it's, it's had a corrective phase in some respects, too. But, you know, uh, this has been multiple expansion. That's what the story has really been. And it still remains to be seen as to whether the earnings are going to live up to where the multiples have expanded, too, right? Absolutely. But, you know, that's where we do our work and we're meeting with the
4: startup companies that are saying, look, here are the problems that we're trying to solve. This is how big a market opportunity is here. We're meeting with customers that are working with those companies that are saying we want more efficiency we want smarter workers we want more efficient programmers and and opportunities to to invest our capital more efficiently going forward and that's what these these what ai powered computing
2: does josh brown has a question for you about Nvidia. josh
3: hi glenn thanks so much for joining us i i share your uh... optimism about this rebuild that we're going to do Um, and moving computing to the next uh, level, and I'm a long-term Nvidia shareholder, but I did take some off the table this summer, and I think the, the, the risk here, and I wanna hear if you agree with this, the risk for Nvidia shareholders, regardless of how bright the future might be, is that there's been a tremendous pull forward in demand, and that it'll be very difficult for them to repeat the upside shock that they've delivered during the last two quarters. Is it likely? that they can do another 40% upside surprise to guidance, for example, probably not. Um, is it possible that a lot of the orders that we're seeing and the shortages that we're seeing for their GPUs, is, that, is it likely that we'll still see that level of demand into 24? So if, if someone's bearish on Nvidia, that's probably the, the, the case that they would make. I'm not bearish on Nvidia, but that is the thing that has me a little bit cautious here do you share that 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 sense of caution or not necessarily
4: there's always double ordering as you know in the semiconductor business when chips are in short supply. So I think it's up to a professional and fantastic management team like the one that NVIDIA has to try and cut through those orders and, and look for uh, look for that double ordering and, and, and ship to those customers that are ready to consume those those chips. So that's always a risk. But I think in this case, there is so much actual demand here for the chips. I mean, I think if you look uh, in the last couple of weeks when Google had their developer conference and they brought Jensen on stage. And for a long time, Google had been saying, yes, w- we buy GPUs, but um, we're happy using our TPUs in our business. Uh, and at the same time, I think they wanted to bring Jensen out and show him off at their developer conference and say yes look if you come and you're going to develop on the google cloud platform you will have access to cycles from nvidia's gpu chips and they needed to show their customer base that they're aligned with NVIDIA, because that's the chip everyone wants to program
2: on. As as positive as you are on on AI and you articulated all the reasons why, do you feel like there's a little too much hype in in the space and that we've branded too many companies as AI winners?
4: Well, I think calling someone a winner or loser in the applications layer is, is hard to do because we, in a lot of cases, those solutions haven't yet been written. And there are startups right now that are just getting going, that will be competing with those application companies, such as an Adobe. And so there's a battle that's
2: going to happen. It doesn't happen today. It's happening in the future. I mean, in many respects, though, the market is trying to price these stocks today based on what might happen in the future. If I could read you a list of 15 stocks that are up, you know, 30, 40, if not even from a greater percentage point standpoint, because we, as the marketplace, have deemed them as AI winners, and you suggest it's just too early to know for many of these names.
4: That's right. Our playbook for investing in a computing cycle like this, a computing shift, is to stay focused on the infrastructure area and then the platform area, the hyperscalers. And the infrastructure area is primarily the semiconductor companies.
2: So when you look at your recommendations, we we just talked about NVIDIA. You like Microsoft. Amazon. Tesla, especially those out of the several stocks that I, I read out before? Why, why those specifically? I mean, aside from NVIDIA, which we've already obviously gone through.
4: Right. So Amazon with AWS, is that's a tremendous opportunity for them to take advantage of, of uh, providing AI cycles to all the software companies and companies that use AWS for their core uh, computing platform. And then Same thing with the Azure platform at Microsoft. Microsoft does have a captive audience of, you know, hundreds of millions of users that are on Microsoft Office. And they've already said, we're going to charge you $30 uplift to have the AI version of Office. And so that's that's a massive opportunity for them. That's probably an exception in that they already have the customers, they already have them captive, and they have the access to the chips to roll out AI applications fu- uh, functionality earlier. But the thing that cu- that fundamentally attracts me to Microsoft is what they're doing uh, earlier in the cycle here with OpenAI
2: and with their Azure business. So you recommend Microsoft. Yes. You own Alphabet as one of your top holdings. We don't recommend anything. We, 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 we actually own them. Okay, but of the names that you focus on, yes. that doesn't seem to be at the, the very high point of your list, is that is that wrong? Am I, am I reading this the wrong way? When, it, when, when I look at the the ones you want to highlight today, it's NVIDIA, Microsoft, Amazon, and Tesla. I don't see Alphabet listed there, even though you own it. Our larger positions are in the um, semiconductor category. Okay, and speaking of, one of the ones you would want to sell, I don't think you own it, is Intel. That's right. But you make the case today that you don't want to own that, why?
4: Right, because I think they're, they're significantly behind uh, NVIDIA and AMD in the graphics processing. Uh, a uh, uh, chip market, and over time we've seen AMD outperforming them in the CPU market. So, in, in they're they're really having trouble in in both areas of, of,
2: of their uh, business, and that's why the company is shrinking. So, Jenny, do you want to entertain that? Since I think you guys still own it,
5: we do, and so we really look at it differently. Which is, look, we're not trying to compete with NVIDIA with respect to uh, with respect to Intel. What we're doing is saying, here's a company that brings in about $60 billion a year of revenues. It is not, as Josh has said before, nobody thinks about it, nobody cares about it, nobody wants it. Actually, if they didn't, they wouldn't bring in $60 billion of revenues. And there is straight up. A valuation, you know, that or a value that people will pay and ascribe to those future revenues. And the share price right now is undervalued relative to the future revenue stream. So it's that simple. We're not saying like, hey, they're gonna be the next coming, they're gonna make amazing chips and they're gonna eat NVIDIA's lunch one day. They're not. We're just saying they play an important role. Every single thing I'm using here, my iPad, you know, the Padcaster, everything, my phone, probably the thing in my ear, has semi-chips in it, and we need them all, and we need everything that Taiwan semi makes, and everything that AMD makes, and I've said this all along, and we need everything that Nvidia makes. We need everything, and Intel is just a player in that market. They serve an important role. They sell a ton of chips, and the stock is underappreciated. So it's not, sure. you know, it's not a black and white thing. It's just here's a company that makes a lot of money, and the shares are cheap.
2: Right. But the, it seems the marketplace, though, has decided that it's a loser relative to an NVIDIA, an AMD and some of the other names, which we'll get to in a moment, regardless of, of whether you want to view it in the same prism or not. The marketplace has clearly placed its vote.
5: Well, I think, you know, this, this goes back to the conversation we've been having, what, for three years, five years on it, which is everybody's portfolio is managed differently and glenn's portfolio is clearly seeking high growth you know high growth he's not worrying about valuations intel's in our discipline growth strategy the discipline growth strategy has a mandate of buying companies that have a five percent or better free cash flow yield and the idea is when the market's melting down and you're in a march of 2020 you know or you're in a great financial crisis you look at the company and you say hey you know what they are making so much money that bankruptcy isn't in the conversation, and when you have an Intel, that fits that strategy so we 're not swinging for the fences we 're not trying to hit home runs but we 're more in that like hey Scott, this will be my like one and only sports reference but we 're more in that like Billy Bean money ball where we 're just trying to hit singles and doubles and if you take a lot of singles and doubles over the long term, you get really great portfolio returns and you do it in a way that's less risky so we don't tend to have like you know an up 80% year, a down 50% year, we tend to be a lot, a lot tighter and um, and just deliver decent returns, but not swinging for the fences, just collecting collecting the companies that we mm-hmm. know the cash flow is being delivered. I'll,
2: I'll Actually, continue, sorry, just via... one
5: thing that goes back to, okay.
2: Yeah. Now Hang on a second. You, you were I'll, saying I'll this. I'll continue. Go- the, hang okay. on a second. I'm sorry, Jenny, thanks. I'll, I'll continue the sports analogy, though, because I think your view would be, um, yeah, but this company's been striking out a lot more than it's been getting, you know, key hits. And, and that's one of the reasons why the stock has done what it has over the last few years. I'm paying a lower
4: multiple for NVIDIA, what's a, it, which is driving the next generation of computing than I am for, than I w- would, uh, in theory, pay for Intel for a company
2: that's got a lot of headwinds and is actually shrinking 15% year over year. The other, you know, story of the day is our chart of the day is Broadcom. I, I mentioned Alphabet, and, um, you know, Broadcom was down a lot. It's down less. It's still down, though, if we, if we show that. Deirdre Bosa has joined us here uh, on set as well. So the stock is way off of its... Uh, lows mm-hmm. but what do we know here about this report of, regarding alphabet and, and broadcom well
0: it fits into the conversation you guys have been having very nicely generative ai the next phase of computing is very expensive it's going to cost the hyperscalers the big tech giants billions and billions of dollars a year on the latest earnings call you heard nearly all of them say that their capex is going to increase because they're buying nvidia GPUs. i think it's interesting kind of glenn something you said a few minutes ago is Google will hold an event. They'll bring Jensen Huang of NVIDIA on stage to show, listen, you'll get access to these GPUs that everyone wants. But at the same time, they're trying to develop their own chips, their tensor processing units or TPUs, which is really what this report is about. It's working with Broadcom and has worked with Broadcom for many years to develop these TPUs in a different era when generative AI didn't have the promise that we now see that it does have. So when Google is paying billions and billions of dollars to have these chips, it makes sense that they want to bring it in-house, which is what the information is reporting, is that they're looking for ways within a few years to bring more of that design in-house, which is a trend That we've seen among the tech giants that are well capitalized that can afford it. And there's this really shiny example of Apple that was able to do so in a very different way with its M series, right? Which eliminated their reliance on Intel. That is what Google, that's what Amazon, that's what Microsoft, that's what they're all trying to do to make this shift to generative AI more palliative to investors, less costly for them, and chips is such a huge part of it. How
2: do you want to look at that, Glenn? Yeah, I think.
4: Google is an incredibly smart company. They're, they've got uh, multiple processes to get to the future, right? One is uh, continue to buy chips from Broadcom, and, and they're also want to stay close to NVIDIA and probably AMD as well. So they want multiple ways to get to the end goal. Um, I think today, in terms of what we're, the news that we're seeing around Broadcom and Google is probably a, a very public uh, price negotiation mm-hmm. that's occurring, and we'll see how that uh, works out. I think it's, a again, a, another smart move by them to put a little pressure on Broadcom to continue to work with them. But uh, I, I expect things will probably work
2: out between the two companies. They've had such an amazing uh, working relationship already. Have you, have you looked at owning Broadcom? I mean, when, when we have these conversations about AI winners, et cetera, I always hear, this is the one you want to own. NVIDIA is too expensive for some. And this is the cheaper way to get real big exposure into the AI play.
4: Definitely. We own Broadcom. Uh, We own it, uh, you know, this custom semiconductor category of Broadcom, which is, you know, where the relationship with Google and the TPU side lives is between twelve and fifteen percent of revenues for the company next year. It's growing germ- very quickly. It was they were it was highlighted on the most recent com- conference call for Broadcom, and and it's one of the you know, reasons
2: we own the stock. The other thing I wanted to hit with you, and I'm glad D is here for this too, um, because you have a, a late stage venture arm, and I don't want this to get away from us at all. But what's happening in the IPO market? Right. Um, you know, if you look at the the post-first-day pop—it's uh, a far different story, which seems to be de- developing here. Whether it's Arm or, or Instacart and, and some of these offerings that have, have come to market, how do you view what's happening right now uh, in tech? And you know, i I'd like your opinion on that too, based on your own reporting. It's the very beginning
4: of um, uh, of the opening of the door for for IPOs. I think it's exciting. It's 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 what institutional investors, endowments, foundations, uh, sovereign wealth funds, those those firms that that feed capital into the venture community it's what they want and and what they need uh, and it's a natural part of uh, the cycle and so it's really exciting that that those doors are opening back up
2: again you got many vcs sorry you got many vcs in your rolodex and i'm just wondering how you know they are thinking about what was a great first day, not so much the second, third, and fourth day, and what that means for the bigger story.
0: I'm looking at Clavio right now. This is only day two, and it's within spitting different. Distance of that IPO price, 32, now 31 bucks, almost 32. So some of the air is coming out very, very quickly. I was talking to one VC this morning, and I think that the Cisco Splunk deal is really interesting this morning too. This is a public deal an acquisition for $28 billion. But what some of the enterprise software companies, right, that are maybe looking, that are private, looking for an IPO, maybe they're looking at strategic M&A, right? When you have legacy players like Cisco going out and saying, okay, maybe the valuation looks attractive. And by the way, Splunk is getting 157 a share. It hit 200 at the peak, but it also went as low as 75 bucks. So if you are a software enterprise company, you've seen your valuation come down. Maybe you don't want to do a round because you don't want to do a down round. There's private equity. There's strategic acquisitions that could be compelling versus an IPO, which is still far from certain. It's only been about a week or so since we saw Arm and then Instacart and now Klaviyo. I don't think we can come to any conclusions just yet.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Thank you very much. Deirdre Bosa here on set with us. We're going to take a break. Glenn Cacher is going to stay with us. When we come back, want your reaction, uh, Glenn, to what uh, Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gunlock told us yesterday about what his ideal portfolio looks like following yesterday's Fed meeting. And later, famed oil trader Mark Fisher, he joins us with his take on the energy market right now. We'll find out how he is trading crude. We are live from One Market in San Francisco. We're back in two minutes. A year and three quarters ago, bonds were stupidly overvalued. And as rich as stocks were when they began that bear market, uh, they were cheap to bonds. That's that's changed by a factor of four. So you've gone from bonds were 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 doubly rich to stocks, so now bonds are doubly cheap to stocks, so it's been a four X shift. And I think that, uh, that that should be respected in portfolio. So I think 25% long-term treasuries, 25% not in cash, but in this, this short-term, uh, not terribly low in credit, but not pristine credit stuff. And then you
1: want 25% uh, in stocks. And at this point, I, I think there might be a case for gro- building a uh, position in commodities.
2: All right, that was Double Lines. Jeffrey Gunlock with me on Closing Bell yesterday, post-Fed, talking about what his ideal portfolio would look like right now. Josh, weigh in on this. What do you think? Bonds doubly cheap to stocks, and he gave you the breakdown of what he would do. And then we'll get Glenn Cater's take.
3: Well, I think Jeff Gunlock's take uh, is is worth a lot more than mine. But I'll just tell you something that we've been doing on a very practical basis in client portfolios uh, over the last two weeks. Uh, during 2020, there was really no difference in yield between short-term bonds versus intermediate or long. Uh, and we took, we took advantage of uh, not having any duration risk and being ready for yields to rise with no idea of when they would rise, uh, but we biased all of our uh, strategic portfolios toward as little duration as possible. What changed over the last couple of weeks is we've made the decision that all things being equal, you don't have that much daylight anymore between let's say a three month or, or six month T-bill versus, you know, the three to seven year uh, treasury bond ETF, for example. And so if there's not that much of a difference in yield, uh, but we do want to lock in the current relatively high yields, now is the time to take on more duration. So we have actually made that shift for clients. It's not because we think we're at the end of the hiking cycle, or we have some sort of edge on whether we're going to five and a half or six. We are comfortable locking in these weights and not having to worry about eventual rate cuts, whether they start in mid-24, late-24, or beyond. So that's something that we've done on a very practical basis in light of how much we've seen rates move uh, really across the curve. Are bonds, in your
2: mind, doubly cheap, as Mr. Gunlock suggests to stocks? Well, we're equity managers,
4: so our, our primary focus is on, on equity markets. And you know, when I look at it, it you know, rate, rates are you know there's a risk they continue to go up. I think Larry Summers came came out and and said it eloquently that that there's likely to be a a, um, a miss uh, on on either side. And and uh, so you know, we're not experts in that in that area. But what I when I look at tech stocks, and I say, what's the real impact of higher interest rates? Most of our companies use very little debt, and they're very cash flow positive, and we're sitting in front of a decade of AI build. And so I see great long-timer opportunities. So if, if uh, Gunlock thinks we should have tw- people should have 25% of their
2: portfolio in stocks, I, I hope they have a significant percentage in tech stocks. Well, I mean, you're, you're an expert enough to, to sort of assess the idea of, you know, if real rates are going to be more elevated um, for a longer period of time, whether you know stocks are overvalued in that sort of environment or not, especially if you think that there could be a recession on the horizon where yeah. earnings are going to be depressed, depressed earnings, higher real rates valuations need to be questioned don 't they
4: there there will be volatility right i mean we, we, we know that, and if there is a recession, it will be difficult for technology stocks for some period of time, yeah, there, there is certainly a risk in, in front of us of, of that, but you know it 's a risk that you have to monitor and it 's not any different than any other cycle,
2: Jim, the uh, the gun lock breakdown uh, of the portfolio, how, how would you assess that and how would you advise your clients around it?
1: Yeah, well, here's what I'm saying to clients. In fact, I talked to a client this morning. You know, like Glenn, I'm an equity manager, but I do advise clients on the big picture. And I said to a client today that compared to two years ago where there was absolutely no reason to be in bonds, now there is. And Scott, you actually just put your finger on it. Yields are real. So if I can buy in the belly of the curve, three to seven year duration, uh, investment grade corporate paper at five and a half, six percent in a three and a half percent headline CPI. That's increasing my purchasing power. Bonds are relevant again. And as you know, if somebody comes from a family of bond managers, frankly, that makes me happy. All that said, I am an equity portfolio manager. I see greater returns from these price levels, much greater than that six percent yield in the equity market still in all. Uh, bonds are relevant and it makes me happy. Yeah. Jenny, how about you?
5: So I think Jim said something really important, which is yields are real. And so when I was listening to Jeffrey speak, I was thinking, okay, what do our clients who I think are reflective of the viewers, why do they own bonds? And most of our clients and I think the viewers own bonds to either buffer their portfolio in downturns or create an income stream. And so what we need to be thinking about right now, because it's been so long since we've been in a real inflationary environment is Okay, what's the real return when I invest in bonds? So, if you're buying a two year bond, you know, a two year treasury, and you're getting 5%, but inflation is 3.5%, your real return, your nominal return is 5.5%, right? But your real return is 1.5%. And is that a return that actually works for you for the long run? So, I think that people need to be very thoughtful about why they own bonds and what they're really going to get in terms of return right now.
2: I'm gonna ask you one more question before I let you go. Um, You own Apple? No. Why? I thought I think I, I knew that was going to be the answer. But, but why? Why? The cell phone market
4: is not very healthy. Um, Apple's outperforming the overall cell phone market.
2: But uh, we're seeing a slowdown in the cell phone uh, industry globally. And, and you don't think that that's troughed? I mean, you know, obviously the new phone that they've just rolled out, that, you know, the early reports are at least that demand has been stronger than expected. I mean, that's stock. How do you view Apple's stock? Sort of in the prism of how you're looking at the overall market with mega cap tech, you know, some would suggest it's like as Apple goes, so goes the rest of of that market.
4: It's been that way for a long time. Well, and, why would it change now? And well, it's what you're paying for growth is is uh, a premium in in our, our view at Apple. So you're paying a relatively high multiple for the
2: the underlying growth there. I'll say okay, so. That's the that's the one that you would say relative to growth, the multiple expansion that we've seen, because that's way ahead of its 10 year historical average Correct. Apple's forward. P.E., that's the one that sticks out to you like a sore thumb out of that group. Yes. I'd much rather own Google or NVIDIA. Yes. You want to give me a quick thought on Tesla, too, before I let you go? Um, That's a top holding of yours as
4: well. I think what they're doing with full self driving is incredible and I think that will create a fantastic opportunity for them in a couple of years. The new Model 3 uh, looks tremendous. It's now being tested on roads here in the, the U.S. Cybertruck, I think, is going to
2: have a cult following, and uh, we're excited about what, uh, what the company's doing. And this, this could you know, have the tendency to be maybe, you know, a little more volatile in a, in a higher rate environment, too, the way that this thing trades. You've seen that firsthand. Yeah, I
4: think a lot of volatility is driven uh, around, uh, uh, around news stories around the company uh, rather than rates. But, um, but it's, that, that tends to be the
2: driver of self-inflicted volatility. news stories. Is that fair to say? That, I think that's fair to say. Okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure we were clear on that point. Um, it's good seeing you as always. Thank you. That's Light Street's Glenn Kacher uh, joining us here at One Market. When we come back, we're talking oil. Crude price is pushing higher again today. Legendary energy trader Mark Fisher joins us exclusively next. We'll find out where he is placing his bets right now.
6: We're back after this. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
2: Welcome back to the halftime report, live from one market here in San Francisco. We're watching oil prices again, and they're up today. Crude on pace for its fourth straight positive month. They're up slightly. Is the recent rally running out of steam? It's a critical question. Let's ask famed energy trader Mark Fisher. Uh, he joins us now. It's good to see you. Uh, welcome to our show. Long or short? What's the way to play this right now, Mark?
6: Right here, I would be not long or short crude. Or I'd be neutral. But I'd be looking to buy dips if we come off five, six, seven bucks, which we're going to, because the commitment as traders is going to, is too, it's something too long. And I think the reason why this is why this is happening is because I think the the pending deal that the United States is trying to do between Saudi, Israel, Palestinians you're seeing less rhetoric coming out of the administration about oil prices as they've gone up $15, $20. And I think that if a deal is being able to be made, I think the administration is going to tolerate a higher level of, of oil prices than they would have previously.
2: Yeah. Well, what role, though, is a, a possible recession going to play in all of this? Not to mention the fact that China just simply weaker at this point. Than I think most people expected that it that it would be coming on the uh, you know the backside of, of the uh,
6: pandemic. I think that the recessions you know the, the fears of recessions are already priced in. I think that interest rate you know, interest rates especially with work yesterday, yesterday kind of priced in. The markets telling you that interest rates have gone up, right? And crude oil is actually rallied know, ten twelve dollars. I think the incremental barrel crude oil is going to be pretty resilient to recession, I think China, I think to some degree is overblown. but I think the real issue going forward is going to be refinery capacity. what happens to the price of chemo oil, distillate, gasoline uh, and that's a wild card because of the fact of a lack of growth of refinery capacity in this country and elsewhere. Yeah. And so what about the while, what about the dollar? Uh, what, what about the dollar mark? I, I don't. I have no idea how the dollar plays into it. You could say that that's Doesn't way it always though?
2: It, the, doesn't it always though? In some respects, I mean, that's the general thought: is that you know, obviously, a higher dollar not good for crude, and vice versa.
6: Yes, but I, I, I like I like to live in my lane, and that's outside my lane. I, I I look at the factors that are going to impact the next three months. The impact the next month is how what, what's the weather going to be over the next three months of this winter? What's going to happen? You know, to drive the next. $6, $8 move in crude oil over the next 30 to 45 days, if there's going to be a, 30, 40, uh, a $6, $8 move. I think that now what's happened is where OPEC has uh, reasserted themselves, Saudi has reasserted himself, and was able to, you know, to inflict some punishment to speculators who were all short. And initially, when Saudi said they were going to cut, and the price went down $4, and now the price has rallied 20 dollars from that point, I mm. think that now there's a uh, like there used to be the Greenspan put to the to the uh, to the equity markets. I think there's a Saudi put to the uh, energy markets to some degree. So oh, interesting. I think that the new level probably if the, if the level before was you know $70, 72 dollars, probably the level now is seventy five you know to eighty dollars as as a bottom. Do so I think oil is going to trade above one hundred bucks, borrowing some you know some unforeseen stuff? No. Do I think the products can go anywhere? Products, I mean, heating oil, gas, and um this is, Yes. And I think, again, coming this winter, so it's like every other winter with everyone mm-hmm. getting, placing about natural gas. Once the once the marketplace gets short, which it's getting now, you're going to probably have a pretty big upside surprise this winter in natural gas.
2: I read a headline yesterday, and I quickly want your opinion on it before we go. A single oil trading firm is fueling a run up in U.S. barrels. It was said to be a French trading
6: firm. Could Could this be true? I wouldn't say anything can't be true, but I would doubt it. Not one company today can't can you know you know, maybe there was a uh, I have no idea I am just speculating. maybe there was a reduction squeeze. maybe there was a delivery mechanism problem with October crude oil. but that doesn't that doesn't you know dictate how why, why crude oil's gone you know up twenty dollars basically on a straight line in the past
2: two months. Well, we need to know the direction of crude oil. We go to somebody who knows the uh, market better than anybody else. Mark, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. That's my Scott. Coming up, deal today Cisco buying Splunk for $28 billion. Jim owns it. So does Jenny. We'll hit it next. We're back on the halftime report. A big deal in the tech world today Cisco buying Splunk. $28 billion shares of Splunk, as you see, up on the news. Cisco, though, down. All right, Jim, you first. You're a shareholder of Cisco, obviously. Give us your take here.
1: Yeah, I like this a lot. Uh, first off, Cisco has been a darling for me. I've owned it for over 10 years. It's exactly matched the S&P 500, but with low drama. And they're paying $28 billion. In, you know, they've got $26 billion in cash and investments on their balance sheet right now. They generate $10 billion in free cash flow a year. So this is not exactly putting them out. But what it does, Scott, is it takes that cash that otherwise would yield whatever, 5%, and they're, they're going to have a stock that now is growing, at, growing its earnings at 53%. At least that's what FactSet sees as the long-term growth rate of Splunk. Sure, some people will argue the price is too much. And, and there's something to be said about the rather lavish way that Splunk uses share-based compensation. But ultimately, you do an acquisition and you squeeze out some synergies. I think they're getting this right now at a stated free cash flow yield of around 4%. That's going to go higher once they squeeze out those synergies and as the company continues to grow. I really like this deal. Jenny, what about you? You own Cisco as well.
5: Right. So everything Jim said. And then in addition to that, it really matches the strategy that we've seen them using for the past better part of the decade. If you look at it, About six years ago, their subscription um, software revenues were about 10% of total. Now they're at 43. And all this says to me is like, hey, we're marching along that path. They've shown huge discipline. They haven't made any acquisitions in the past four years. Yes, this is a big one. But in their 40-year history, they've made over 200. So I think they've been disciplined. They've been thoughtful. There was a lot of chatter about this deal last year and I think, February of 22. So I think they've been thinking about it. I think it's very, I think it's just a smart, thoughtful, on the exact right track for them. So we're pretty psyched about it, too.
2: All right, good stuff. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back here to One Market. We'll do Final Trades next. All right, closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern, right back here at One Market. Cameron Dawson will be with me. Joe Terranova has several new moves in the market we're going to go through. Low Tony is going to be here on set with me on the tech trade, the flurry of IPOs. What happens next? We'll go through all of that. Final Trades. Jenny, you're first.
5: Sure. Triple N REIT. So this used to be called National Retail Properties. Whenever there's retail, the stock goes down. They own things like Circle K and 7-Eleven, 6.1% dividend yield, 32-year Thirty-two history of, pay- 32 year history of increasing and in paying out that dividend.
1: Okay. Farmer Jim, what do you got? Yeah. As semiconductors have pulled back over the last month, month and a half, a lot of bargains have appeared. and NXP Semiconductor is one of them.
3: Okay. Josh Brown? Uh, CrowdStrike just had its annual user conference, really had a lot of great stuff to say about subscription gross margins going up. I'm still in the name and I like it. All right, a couple hours. I'll see you right back here. Guide you through that final hour of
2: trade. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Hello
0: or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.
5: CNBC has
0: quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.